Let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 13 this morning. Matthew chapter 13. We've been studying the Gospel of Matthew together since December, and uh, we find ourselves this morning in chapter 13. Let me just encourage you uh, by saying if you don't have a Bible in front of you, you're going to be at a supreme disadvantage as we make our way through this text this morning, or really any text any morning. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. You'll find one at the Visitor Information Center as you exit the auditorium. If you'd rather not speak to someone, you can just take the Bible in the pew in front of you. We'd be happy if you did that. Um, Otherwise, please download an app. Whatever you have to do to get God's Word in front of you as we read together. The text for this morning is Matthew 13, verses 1 to 23. Matthew 13, 1 to 23. As you turn there, you'll see these words. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no roots, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear." Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart is dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see." And your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, 
and then another 30. This is God's word. Let's bow and pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that as your word is preached, that what would actually be happening is that Jesus, that great sower of gospel seed, would spread his seed upon the hearts of each and every one of us who are here, and that we would be found to be good soil, bearing fruit a hundredfold, or sixty, or thirty. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I have a friend who uh, was a medical student, and on one occasion she was recounting sort of her career in college, her long career in college. And she noted that she at one point had a professor who said, on the very first day of class, um, you're going to have to work very hard to get a C in this class. You're going to have to expend all of your energy just to make it, just to get a C. It's going to be difficult. There's going to be a lot of work, and the material is hard to master. You're going to have to work very hard just to get a C. Can you imagine? You go to the class on the first day, you're sort of revved up and ready to go, and then boom, you get that along with a large amount of reading assigned for the first night. You know, we might think that that sort of professor is just a sadist and just trying to be difficult, have a reputation for being hard. Maybe. What this friend of mine came to realize over time is that what the professor was doing was sifting. There was a separation happening. There was a sifting between those students who were committed to the course of study that they'd embarked on and those who were sort of just along for the ride, those who were serious and those who weren't. There's a separation. And I think in very uh, similar ways, Jesus here, as he unleashes his teaching in parables, is doing just about the same thing. There's a sifting. There's a separation happening as Jesus begins to unfold what we call the mysteries of the kingdom He's determining, or showing, rather, those people who are listening to his message and have committed themselves to him, while at the same time exposing those who were sort of just part of the crowd, those who had rejected him, and rejected them they had. Here in Matthew 13, we come right on the heels of really three chapters that can only be defined by opposition. Jesus is opposed even by the people in religious leadership over Israel. It seems like the the Pharisees and the scribes led the charge in rejecting Christ. Even to the point, at at one point, we saw in Matthew 12, when they accused Jesus of being satanic. Preposterous claim of opposition. And the question that you can imagine the disciples asking, perhaps it's a question that you've been asking as we've made our way through this gospel, is why? This makes no sense. I mean, if Jesus is the Son of David, the Messiah, the Lord, the Savior, who has come to save His people from their sins, why are the religious scholars, by and large, rejecting Him? Well, the parables answer that question. Why, they might ask, why does it seem like you, Jesus, Lord and Savior, Son of David, the one who is to come, the prophesied one, the promised one, why does it seem like you've come, not with a bang, but with a whimper? I mean, I'm not trying to be blasphemous, but at this point in time in Matthew's gospel, it seems like the ministry of Jesus parallels the regular season uh, achievements of the Cleveland Browns, right? (laughs) A lot of hype, 
not very many wins. Why? Why? I am a Browns fan. So membership has its privileges. Why? The parables answer that question. The parables separate. What is a parable? A parable can be defined in several different ways. One of the best Greek dictionaries or lexicons defines a parable as a narrative or story of varying length designed to illustrate a truth, especially through comparison or simile. In a more folksy way, we might say a parable is a, an earthly story that points to a heavenly reality. Perhaps you've heard that. You might just think this morning, like many think, that the purpose of the parables of Jesus is to make things clear. Now, if you've done any theological education, you will have heard from someone at some point, you know, preacher, Jesus told stories. And if you want to preach like Jesus, then you should tell stories. That's how people will really get the message. I think you're going to find this morning that that is an entirely unbiblical notion. Because the reason that Jesus tells the parables here in Matthew 13 is not to make the truth clearer, it's to obscure the truth. I wonder if you caught that as we read. It's not merely to disclose, it's also to hide. That's what Jesus himself says. And this first parable, the parable of the sower, is sort of the parable par excellence in that it presents within itself the response that many will have to the words of Jesus. In a sentence, we might say that the parable of the sower separates those who have been given the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom from those who have not been given this knowledge. So as we hear the parables of Jesus, as we hear this parable, we find ourselves sifted, separated, if you will, into two groups. One group, a group to whom Jesus has given the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, and another group to, to whom it's not been given. Hard words from Jesus, but the words of Jesus nevertheless. Now, I almost always try to prize clarity over cleverness. And so, in the sake of, for the sake of clarity, let's just tackle the passage in front of us, if you have an ESV, by using the words right there in the headings of the ESV. So that in verses 1 to 9, we're going to see the parable. In verses 10 to 17, we're going to see the purpose. And verses 18 to 23, we're going to see the explanation. Parable, purpose, explanation. Given to sift those who've been given the secrets from those who have not. Firstly, the parable. You said in verses 1 to 9, there's this beautiful picture that is painted for us by Matthew. That same day, the, the same day that Jesus has been opposed and, and has been accepted and, and has gone through all of the turmoil, he goes out from the house and sits beside the sea. Verse 2, great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach. How wonderful is this? So many people are flocking to hear Jesus preach that he's in danger of being pushed into the sea, so he has to get into a boat and sit down. Everybody else stands up. I thought about maybe we should implement that uh, this week as I was sitting in my office. Wouldn't it be great if I could sit and you all stood while I preached? And then Spurgeon noted that if we would do that, there'd be far, few peop- far fewer people falling asleep during sermons. You say, well, don't, don't, don't sell yourself, to, you know, don't think too highly of yourself. Maybe we'll try it. Maybe we won't. But Jesus is sitting in a boat. Everybody else is standing around him as he preaches, and he begins to tell him this story. And the story 
whether you grew up in an agricultural sort of area, whether you were a farmer or not, you can sort of grasp on a surface level what Jesus says. There's a sower who goes out to sow seed, and he's sowing his seed indiscriminately. He's just sort of throwing it about. I'm sure there's a little bit more rhyme or reason and, and reason to it than that, but it's an indiscriminate sowing of seed. If we were going to mix our metaphors, we would say he's casting a wide net, right? He's just sort of sowing seed all over the place, and there are these four different soils that the seed falls on. There's the soil that is actually uh, just along the path. The King James Version calls it the, the wayside. I love discovering things that are part of our just English dialogue that originated in the Bible. So when you say something fell by the wayside, that's what Jesus says here. It falls along the path. You can imagine. There's people wear down path and the ground gets packed in and the, the sun begins to beat down. It becomes rock hard. So there's seed that falls on the wayside or the path and the birds come and snatch it before it can take root. Other seed, Jesus says, falls on very shallow soil and springs up immediately but then is scorched and killed uh, by the heat because it has no depth of soil. Other seed falls among thorny ground and it's choked up. Beautiful imagery of, of just being squashed and suffocated by the thorns. And then still there's a fourth response, uh, good soil that produces grain or we might say fruit. There's a, there's a harvest to what was sown. There's an ability to be a reaper, not just a sower. That's the parable of Jesus. But do you get it? Do you get it? That's the point. Do you get it? Because there's far more to it than is on the surface. Do you understand? Now, we're going to move immediately into the purpose of the parables, because you can imagine. I mean, just, just put yourself there on that day as you stand on the shore and you look out at Jesus as he's sitting in his boat and he's telling this story, you can imagine that someone would have approached James or Peter, maybe even Matthew, and said, you know, if your rabbi really wanted to get his message across, if he wanted to be clear, he's surely picking a strange way of being clear because I can't work out for myself what sowing seed has anything to do with the realities of life and death or the holiness of God, or what it means to be in the kingdom. I, I can't work out what it means. And maybe the disciples at this stage couldn't either. And so they come in verse 10, and they just ask this very simple question. Then the disciples came and said to him, why? Why do you speak to them in parables? I want you to take special notice of how Jesus responds. Verse 11, he answered them, to you has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. So, simple enough, understanding of the gospel is a gift. If you're a Christian person here this morning, it is not because you're more clever than the people in your workplace. It's just not. It's fundamentally not. It is not because you're a little bit more spiritually sensitive than the other people in your family. That has nothing to do with it. If you understand the secrets of the kingdom of heaven as Jesus unfolds that teaching in his parables, it's not because you took a class on literary theory in college. I took that class. Profoundly unhelpful, right? Spend more time talking about making texts say the opposite of what they say than actually understanding what they say. It's not because of anything in you. 
You see what Jesus says to the disciples, to you, it has been given. That's a gift. To know the secrets, musteria, mystery of the kingdom of heaven. In New Testament language, mysteries are things that are hidden and then must be revealed. So if the mystery has been revealed to you, that's a gift. You've got to peek behind the curtain, courtesy of the Lord Almighty. You've got a glimpse into spiritual reality, courtesy of the Lord Almighty. But to them, it has not been given. Now, this is going to become more important as we bring our time to a close, but we have to ask the, the question, who is them? You just back up in the passage. Who is this them that Jesus speaks of? Verse 2, great crowds gathered about him. So that he got into a boat and sat down. The whole crowd stood on the beach. Verse 3, he told them many things in parables. So here we have a massive sifting. To you, the twelve, you've been given the secrets. To the crowds, they've not received this gift. He continues, for to the one who has, to the one who has been given the knowledge of the kingdom of heaven, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. This is why, week in and week out, we continue to teach the Bible, because it's a beautiful gift. If you've understood the gospel, if you understand the kingdom, to be given more knowledge from the Word of God, that is a tremendous gift. You will have an abundance, but from the one who has not, not even a cursory understanding, not even an elementary understanding of the gospel, even what he has, that rudimentary sort of misunderstanding that will be taken away. Jesus is as crystal clear as you can possibly get in verse 13. This is why. This is why I speak to them in parables. Not sort of because I want to give, you know, the the, the best children's talk that I can possibly give so even the stupidest people in the congregation will get it. That's not what Jesus says. He says, this is why I speak in parables. Because, precisely because, seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. You understand what, what the prophet is saying there? It's possible to listen, but not hear. It's possible to look, but not see. You know, in, in a sense, the, the mystery of the kingdom is like those magic eye things that you stare at. You know, your eyes go crossed, you get dizzy. One in a hundred is able to see the image in the thing. You know what it means? We once prayed for Henry as he was going to sleep at night. I prayed that the Lord would give him eyes to see and ears to hear. He said, what are you talking about, Dad? I already have eyes. I already have ears. But of course we understand that there's a deeper reality here that's being pointed to. This people's hearts. Here it is. It's a heart issue. It's fundamentally internal. This people's heart has grown dull. Their hearts are calloused. I have calluses on my hands. I can pretty much take a nail clipper to them and remove them, and I don't feel a thing. Why? Because it's dead skin. There's no sensitivity. There's no feeling. Jesus said that's how their hearts are. There's no spiritual sensitivity or feeling. And because of that, because their hearts are so hardened, they reject me. They're dull. Their ears they can barely hear. Their eyes have been closed. So that lest they should see and hear and understand and turn 
and I would heal them. So Jesus here is quoting from Isaiah chapter 6, this wonderful text. As Isaiah the prophet gets a vision of the heavenly throne room, and he sees the angels worshiping, saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with His glory. And then the the voice of the Lord cries out in the presence of Isaiah, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Isaiah, completely overwhelmed with the sight, says, here I am, send me. Do you know what the Lord says to him? Go and say to this people. How would you finish that? Go and say to this people, my wayward, sinful people. There's an impending judgment. What would you have the Lord commission Isaiah to say? I'll tell you what the Lord does say. Tell these people to keep hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing but do not perceive. Isaiah, make the hearts of this people dull and their ears heavy. Blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And Isaiah says, how long do you want me to say that? That's a terrible ministry. You know book deals doing that, right? How long, O oh Lord? is Isaiah's question. God responds, until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away until judgment comes. Isaiah, I want you to go and proclaim to this people who will not listen. They are too stubborn. Their hearts are too hard. They care nothing for your message, and I want you to do that until judgment strikes. And here's Jesus. He is the Isaiah to end all Isaiah's. You see, my mission is to speak to a dull people all day long, to proclaim and proclaim and proclaim to people who will listen but not hear. And so, I speak to them in parables to give them exactly what they want. They want to remain in the dark, they can remain in the dark. But, verse 16, blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. For truly I say to you, understand this, loved ones at First Baptist, Truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Do you understand how much Abraham would have given to read the Gospel of Matthew? What King David would have given to read the Gospel of Matthew? What Isaiah and Jonah and Hosea and Zechariah and Zephaniah and all the guys stand at the most privileged period of salvation history. Sometimes we wish I could go back and say, no, we're the fullness of the Scriptures. That's what Peter says in his first letter as he looks back. He says, concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that now have been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So do you get it? The beautiful thing about the Bible is that the Bible gives us its own application. You understand that? So I, I, I almost never sit in my office on a, on a weekday and go, Oh my gosh, what am I, how am I going to make this passage relevant? No, the passage is relevant. There's a command here that's given twice. There's an application given for you by Jesus. And you know what that application is? Here, listen. Look at this. 
Verse 9, he who has ears, let him hear. That's a command. Listen, hear. Then verse 18, after Jesus explains the purpose of the parables is to sift, to to withhold truth for those who have rejected Jesus and to give more truth to those who have accepted Him. Look at verse 18. Hear then the parable of the sower. Listen. Do you get it? Have you worked it out? Do you understand the reality of what Jesus is saying? It's the answer to the question, why Why don't people trust Jesus? Why don't the people in your family trust Jesus? Why don't the people in your workplace trust Jesus, wherever you might be? Again, to this point in the story, it seems like Jesus is taking far more L's than he has W's. Why? Well, third and finally, the explanation of this parable of the sower, this parable that sifts, that separates. Jesus explains In a sense, the parable itself is seed for many that falls on the path. Misunderstood, not understood, not lived out, not thought out, not heard. Here then, verse 18, the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom. Stop. Here we have the sower, right? He's sowing indiscriminately. What is he sowing? According to Jesus, it's the word of the kingdom. It's the gospel message. It's that the King has come. Jesus is the Son of David. He's come to live a perfectly righteous life, to die upon the cross for the sins of those who would trust in Him, to rise again victorious over death. That's the message of the kingdom. By believing that message, you and I might be brought into the kingdom of Christ. That's the word of the kingdom. Notice that the sower is sowing the seed indiscriminately. It seems everywhere he goes, this word is going out. Last night we were in Akron and celebrated, we participated in trick-or-treat in Akron. My son, I'm not even kidding, this is the the funniest thing in the world, he doesn't really care about going trick-or-treating, he just wants to pass out candy. So we go to like five houses, he wants to go back to the house and pass out candy. And what he loves to do is he loves to stand in the garage at the end of the driveway by the candy bowl and he just sort of declares, he announces that anybody who will listen, we've got the goods! You need to come up the driveway. We've got the goods. I mean, it's hilarious. He just gets so worked up about it. And I think some kids are a little, you know, distraught by what they're experiencing. They just keep walking. It's the funniest thing. Some people are like, whoa, that's creepy. We're not going there. But then other kids come right up the driveway. But Jesus, or I'm sorry, Henry, he just announces indiscriminately, we've got the goods. Different responses. And certainly it's true here. The sower goes out and he sows the seed indiscriminately. We've got the goods. And as Jesus continues on, he describes for us three ways to reject Jesus. Three ways. And one way to accept him. Three ways to reject him, one way to accept him. I pray that as we move our way through these, that you will not find yourself in one of the three ways of rejecting Jesus. And if you do, that you would repent today. And you find your heart to be good soil. Three ways of rejecting Jesus. Number one, you might reject Jesus simply by not understanding Jesus. Look at what he says, verse 19. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. And this ground 
that's been packed in, packed down, sun beating down on it, becomes hard as stone. Jesus says, the first way to reject me is I have a heart that's just like that. Trampled on, packed down, hard as stone, calloused, impenetrable. And we meet people like this. Some of you might be like this. You've heard the words of the kingdom over and over and over again, and yet it just simply has not made sense to you. It's made sense intellectually, it just hasn't made sense to you. And Jesus says, in your case, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in your heart. But understand this. The reason that the evil one is able to snatch away what was sown is that it never took root. Yeah, I think for a second, friends. Sometimes I believe that some of us think that the God and, and the devil, God and the devil are in this sort of eternal battle and they're equal yet opposite. They're sort of playing tug of war and sometimes the devil wins. No. Are you kidding me? The devil's a defeated foe. God is God. But understand that every time the word of Christ goes out from this pulpit, every time you speak in boldness for Jesus in your workplace, every time that's when true spiritual warfare happens. Okay? That's spiritual warfare. What does the devil want more than anything? I'll tell you what he doesn't want. He doesn't want Jesus to have the prize for which he died. The first way of rejecting Jesus is simply to be hard-hearted and refuse to really work out and consider what the, the gospel of Jesus might mean for you today if you would repent and believe. But at least in the case of the person who has a hard and stony heart, there's what I might call spiritual honesty. There's the open rejection. But the second way to reject Jesus according to Jesus is by being what I might call, what we might call, a fickle, fair-weather fan of Christ. A fickle, fair-weather fan of Christ. Look at what Jesus says in verse 20. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately, notice the repetition of that word, just as soon as it springs up, it's scorched, immediately he falls away. Here is the fickle, fair-weather fan of Jesus. It is wonderful to hear that in Jesus you might have forgiveness of sins, that you might have eternal life, that you might find purpose and community. All those things are true. But understand this. If your faith in the Gospel is based solely on what you might get from Jesus and isn't about getting Jesus Himself, I'm telling you right now, you're a fickle, fair-weather fan of Jesus. We all know how it goes. A young man who is excited for a time about the gospel of Jesus Christ, but then is ridiculed by his classmates for being a bigot, being hateful, for being stupid, irrational, made fun of, persecuted, and immediately he falls away. A young woman who is awestruck by the seemingly too-good-to-be-true promises of the Gospel. And when that bad news comes, 
is so overwhelmed that she forsakes the good news. Bad news overtakes good news. It's Mark Dever that observes, and I think he's, he's so right. It is very easy when it's Jesus and. It's very different when it's Jesus or. I mean, think about it. It's really simple when it's Jesus and my health. It's very easy when it's Jesus and my reputation. For some of you, it's pretty easy when it's Jesus and my mistress. But when it's Jesus or my health, Jesus or my reputation, Jesus or my mistress, well, that's when we find out just what kind of soil we are. Friends, we are in a cultural moment where the rocky soil is starting to be exposed. Do not be a fair-weather fan of Jesus. This believer, so-called, isn't really into Jesus. She's only into what she can get from Him. The third way of rejecting Jesus, according to Jesus, is to be preoccupied, verse 22. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Here's the thorny ground. The image is easy enough to understand. There's not any room for the seed to take root because the soil is already nourishing the thorns. The application for you and for me is that your heart only has enough affection in it for one primary focus. Your heart cannot have divided affection towards two somewhat or so-called primary focuses. It can't happen. Jesus has said it Himself. You cannot serve both God and money. This is the person who in hearing about the good news of Christ, thinks for a moment about the kingdom, but then is just completely overwhelmed with thoughts of career. If not career, then thoughts of family. If not family, an undue preoccupation with hobbies. These are just my temptations. I don't know about you. Our hearts only have room for one primary affection. And Jesus has been clear throughout this gospel, it must be me, it must be me, it must be me. Anyone who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who tries to serve money and me is is unworthy of me. It's me. But then there is this one way described of receiving Jesus. Verse 23, as for what was sown on good soil. This is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case, a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. Here's the paradigm. It's very simple. Hear, understand, bear fruit. Do you see that in the text? How do I respond to Jesus? Hear, understand, bear fruit. It's not enough simply to hear. It is not enough simply to hear and to understand. It is hear, understand, bear fruit. That's gospel grace. This is the person, the man or the woman, who hears the message of the kingdom and the king who has come and understands it, 
trusts in Jesus, gives her life to Jesus to follow Him as Lord and to receive the salvation that He brings, and then as a result of that begins to bear fruit. There is a harvest. There's something to show for it. And so if you, you have been taught that sort of just faith alone that never issues in holiness or righteousness or mission for Jesus is adequate. You've been lied to. That's not faith biblically. No, Jesus is clear. Here, understand, bear fruit. That's the one who's responded to me. Think it out. Again, you don't even have to be into agriculture. If you see a tree, a fruit tree that has no fruit on it, what do you call it? Dead. Why would it be any different spiritually? Do you get it? Why? Why isn't everybody believing in Jesus? Why isn't everybody running to Jesus, weeping even? Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. Why isn't that happening? Well, because, according to Jesus, some people's hearts are just hard towards him. So we just reject him. Some people are just completely dug in. No. I will not have this king. I will not be a part of this kingdom. But if what Jesus says is true, don't think for a minute that if you're in the kingdom, you're any better. Jesus is the sower who indiscriminately calls men and women to repent and to trust in him. If we're playing pure st statistics here, it, it's strange to think that, you know, was it one in four? One in four. Now, of course, that's not the. But you get the point. I want to say a word about this just for us as a church before we bring our time together as a to a close. You know, we've, we've made a lot about this idea that our church exists to glorify God by making disciples who make disciples. We, we really mean that. Like, if you're a member of First Baptist Church, our expectation is that you're taking the gospel to the people around you. I want to share with you that in my own evangelistic efforts since I've moved to Lawrence County, I don't think one person's believed, not one. That's not for lack of activity, guys. The people that I've shared about Jesus with, even in this past month, remain unconverted. They remain my friends, praise God. And I love them, and I pray for them, and I will share with them again, but I mean, I've, I'm 0% success rate. Does that mean that it's not glorifying to God that I should? No. And here's the thing, the temptation for you and for me, and it's a real temptation, the temptation is, okay, there's something wrong with the seed. We're doing something wrong here. The message isn't right. We've got we to, gotta, you know, put some bells and whistles on it. We've got to fix it up. We've got to dress it up. We've got to package it the right way. There is no indication in this parable that there's a problem with the seed, is there? The problem isn't the seed. The problem's the soil. And that is so incredibly liberating. The problem's not the seed. And I, I just, what do we do? We stand in the garage next to the candy dish and we say, we've got the goods to everybody who will listen, to everybody. 
but we do so with the understanding that some people are just hardened. Like, let's not expect, you know, all Warren's County to come running down to the altar because we said we've got the goods. In fact, if one comes, it's a tremendous miracle, and praise God for it. But if this parable teaches us anything, if the parable and the purpose and the explanation of this parable teaches us anything, practically sort of boots on the ground as we try to minister in the name of Jesus, it's this. And we're going to say it over and over again. I'm going to make you repeat it until we've all understood it. We will be faithful. God will be fruitful. Not the other way around. We will be faithful. God will be fruitful. What do I mean by that? We will be faithful to indiscriminately sow the seed. God will be fruitful by causing it to land on good soil and bear fruit. The kind of soil is not in my wheelhouse. That's not my prerogative. That's not my expertise. God has called me and He has called you. He's called us to just sow the seed. And we have the promise of God Almighty behind us that if we'll do that, He will cause fruit to be born. Praise God for that. You know how well I sleep at night? You know how well you can sleep at night if you come to grips with this. That God has opened my eyes. He has caused the seed of the gospel to fall on good soil. He drew me to to Himself. He didn't have to do that. He chose to do that. Praise Him. And He's given me this message to proclaim to all who will listen. And in so doing, He is glorified even as this message either draws people to Himself or furthers the hardening process. He's glorified. God is good. He's gracious. His Word is incredibly powerful. So may we be faithful, First Baptist, may we be faithful to each and every time we have opportunity to say, we've got the goods. Come and get it. Let's pray. Father, these are unfathomable mysteries proclaimed by Your Son. On the surface of things, it's just a very simple story of a sower and seed. And yet in it, You make known to us the reality, the the truth that You are the God who saves. That our hearts are soil. And that if Your Word has taken root in us, it's because You have made us good soil by choosing to give to us the knowledge of the secrets of the Kingdom of Heaven. So keep us humble. Lord, we understand that there will be many who say with tears, will be hardened against Christ, There will be those who make a quick profession 